Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the eighth episode, I spoke with Kate Rutter, who is an adjunct professor at California College of the Arts. She's a phenomenal UX designer with strong background in arts and painting, so she sometimes refers to herself as a sketch noter and graphic recorder. But she also combines her visual skills with data and metrics, particularly in her design process. And that's what we spoke about in great detail in this episode. So some of the topics that we covered were why it makes sense to measure design, so what are the benefits for you and for your team, then how do you find a design metric for your project, and how do you recognize a good metric, and lastly, we spoke how you connect a design metric to the business value and how you explain the value of your work to non-designers. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Kate. So um, I like to begin this podcast with learning a little bit more about the, uh, you know, like your background and your history. And what I usually ask in the beginning is like, how did you get into design? Because you've, you've studied art, right? So how did you got from... Um, art to and painting to basically design well that's a funny story so when i was starting in college um it wasn't really i wasn't looking at selecting a major based on what i thought i would do in the world i knew i was um not really very focused on that and so i took a liberal arts background which is just a generalist college degree uh, there was a specialty, so I chose painting, and I got to that from engineering. I really wanted to build cybernetic humans when I was in college and high school, um, and uh, yeah. And then from there, I uh, I moved more into architecture because I like the spatial considerations of that, and then from architecture into into sculpture, and then into painting and fine arts. So although my degree has a specialty in painting, it's really a very generalist degree. And I'll never forget when I graduated college and I was back spending time with my parents and um, they were having a dinner party and a friend of my father's was there. And he said, you have a degree in painting. You are trained to do nothing. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, I know, right? But I'm prepared to do anything because what I got instead of a, of a training and kind of a specific technical background was a real curiosity about looking at the world and trying to figure out how things work and um, being voracious in observing things and trying to understand the why behind things. And so all of that prepared me for uh, really enjoying and being a good participant in, uh, in the world of design and technology, which is what I discovered pretty quickly after college. Hey, I'm just curious, like, what did your parents say when you told them you're going to study uh, arts and painting? Well, they really are very um, 
more hands off. They, I was a headstrong child. So I think that they got a lot of practice early on when I was living at home that, um, that I had a pretty good vision and uh, for what I wanted to do. And I was determined to make it work. So although they were pretty pleased with the college that I selected uh, and they thought it was a good background and a, and a, a, a responsible choice. And so the fact of what I was choosing to study within that, that college system was less important to them. Um, but to this day, I think that my parents are both uh, gratified that I picked something that I was able to fall in love with. I still love the visual arts. I still make a lot of visual things. I've brought a lot of that hand craft into my practice as a digital designer. And, uh, and I think it's all part of a mix that makes the work stronger. So they're, they're pretty supportive. Awesome. But how did you even hear about a design? Because design wasn't that popular back then, right? Well, when we talk about design, that's a, that's a big word. So mm -hmm. there was definitely design. There were all kinds of things going on in design. But when we talk about the digital types of interfaces, screens, uh, devices that we have now, absolutely not. I, I, you know, I cut my teeth in the blue screen era, um, and the only GUI we really had was, was early Macs. Uh, and when I came out of college, I, I worked in a field called desktop publishing, which was about using computers to make print stuff uh, more cost effective to design and, and do things like that. So it's more of a graphic design role. Um, I've had kind of a very checkered career past, so I won't go into too much detail because it gets boring. But what happened was I was in a role at a nonprofit um And the, the organization was in real need of some computer assistance. And so I became a sysadmin and was responsible for the computer network, which was in those days just a LAN, a local area network of PCs running really pretty early Windows, Windows 3.11. And through that process of supporting computers and supporting the humans, especially on the other side of the computer, um, I got really interested with how digital products worked. And that was right at the time when the internet was blooming from what I'd call text oriented, um, resources into a real, into the World Wide Web as we start to know it now. So there was a visual interface. HTML was a, a markup language that was very accessible. The cost of entry was really low. And so I started playing around with, you know, making websites and, uh, learning Photoshop and seeing what could be done uh, through these screens. And that was really the entry is the combination of network background and some of the technical background from being a system, admin, a system administrator into this web interface. Um, mm -hmm. That's really where I got my foray into what became user experience design. So is there any example of a project that you've done in that your like early part of the career? So still this very, Uh, text-oriented uh, early days of tech? Oh, good, good times. Uh, there was a project that I did for the nonprofit that I worked in. We were developing an intranet, um, and we used a metaphor of a town for our intranet because most, very, very few of the people who were in the organization had ever interacted with websites of it all. So we're trying to make that as accessible as possible. And as many early experiments go, it was incredibly cloying. We had like this little townscape image and you clicked on the little 
storefronts for getting various things. So there was the copier town, there was the copier storefront. And if you click there, you could get manuals to how to run the photocopiers. And you couldn't, I mean, there was no dynamic content really that we had available to us. And so it was very, it was like the online man, it was like the manual, the printed manual for how to be an employee um, put onto a computer, but in a, a more interactive format. And looking back at some of the graphics, they're just so, they're so quaint. And they're so uh, terrifyingly skeuomorphic, I guess. And so that was a project. But, you know, when it launched, people, the staff of 40 used the internet to get their everyday work done. And that was also transformative. It was the first time they didn't have to call someone like me or call someone in operations to ask a simple question. It was that whole shift from I need to call someone to do it for me to I can do this myself. And that's that was the beginning of the organizational transformation that I just saw consistently as companies adopted web technologies. Mm -hmm. How much was design about being user-centered versus about coming up with great graphics or being artsy back then? <laughs> oh, back then. I, I'm, I know that there were definitely designers who really had the user interactions and the user's needs at heart, but that was not me. I came to a user-centered design um, when I joined a, an organization called Adaptive Path. And I'd always liked designing the things, and I knew, definitely had an awareness and an openness and an understanding of the human beings, and I, I didn't ever think that people were stupid and, mm -hmm. quote, just needed to learn how to use this thing correctly. I never had that kind of contempt. But I was very focused on the system complexity, on the interface elements, on the things, I would say. Uh, and I think from the early, in, in early websites, a lot of us were focused on, as you say, the, the visual design or the, the content and the content structure. And we were using our own instincts to make decisions that we felt would be in service to the user. But we weren't really talking so much to the people using our products. And, Yeah, and it was probably it was it was late '90s before that became really apparent that that was a, a critical way of designing products. And then for me, the the craft and the understanding of what methods and what approaches really made that work effectively was when I joined Adaptive Path in in 2004. So I think I think um, now we can jump into um, the big topic that I want to ask you about which is this whole thing about measuring and quantifying design um so i basically heard about you and your work because of the talk that you gave at the ux immersion conference and there you talked about measuring design and that's a topic that i'm very fascinated by um so i'd like to obviously dive into that now so maybe first of all like where did you even get the idea that you can measure design that's a great question and You know, one of the transitions that happened um, between early digital products and kind of the state of the of the field now is that products went from being pretty passive around content organization into being very interactive and alive. I mean, we have we have applications, we have products that do things, and that didn't used to exist. I mean, until we got the technology to really be interactive in a way that could store data and have data manipulation on the back end and all of those technologies, really products couldn't do much. They were more click and read. And so when products started really doing things, then they, 
I think that was when the first opportunity and the first inkling came of, well, then what does success look like? And software development is really hard. And earlier, I think many cultures of software development or design even consider that the project or the effort of design is the thing that needs to be measured. So are we on budget? Are we on time? Mm -hmm. And the real benefit, of course, to a business is not, are we on budget? Are we on time? That's one view of it. But the benefit to a business is, is this thing we are investing our time and effort and resources in going to help or hurt our business? And it's usually one of the two. It's either going to help our business or it's going to hurt our business. And at that point, you need to be much more nuanced in deciding and understanding what makes something helpful for our business and what makes something hurtful. And so those, in most business terms, come down to the basics of revenue and cost. Mm -hmm. But design teams, and especially experienced design teams, have been building a lot of capability, I think, in the last decade, meaning we don't even know how to reach our customers yet through a digital channel. So we don't even understand what the possible benefits of a specific digital pursuit or digital strategy might be. And so we haven't had to to measure, um, we haven't had to associate our work tightly with revenue considerations. It's always, or it's common for it to happen kind of in a in another area or like, well, this is an investment for the company. We know it's a good idea because everybody's doing it. Mm-hmm. But when you really get into products that are performing service and meet and um, fulfilling needs for customers and users, then you really do have an opportunity and a requirement, I think, to look at what is the benefit this product provides our, our customers and how do we articulate that in numerical terms so that we can measure and quantify the benefit of this product? And that has been a real shift. And quantifying design is a really big category because those are both vague words. Quantifying is huge. Design is huge. But when we talk about the specifics of what series of interactions do we need to measure to ensure that our customers are getting the benefit for which we have designed the product then it starts being a lot more specific and then it's possible to start to quantify the usage of our products in that way. Mm -hmm. That was a big shift for me also when I listened to that talk, like seeing this difference between um, the business metric, which is, which is usually kind of the revenue, the costs and the whole, this part about capturing basically value, right. And the Mm -hmm. design, which is basically measuring um, the user and is the user getting the value in the product. Um, but maybe it's interesting, maybe it's the best if we talk about it through an example. Is there like a favorite example that you have that we could go through and see how you find a metric, uh, how do you define it, what is a good metric and so on? There is. I'm going to use the example that I use in my workshops, which is Taskadoodle because it's a, a mobile task sharing app. And it was the, the lessons from that were kind of distilled out from when I was working with a uh, a whole bunch of startups in my own startup um, co-founded with Janice and Jason uh, Frazier. Anyway, we were working with a lot of lean startups and, and experimentation and measurement is core to lean startup and, and lean design. So I'll you go ahead and use that example, but rather than, so it's a, it's fairly complex and detailed to address, to walk through how you think about, a specific metric for your product, because I love this quote from, um, from, uh, oh gosh, 
I'm blinking from Bacardo. So uh, that's his, his website. <laughs> it's still early morning here. Um, but he says your metrics will be as unique as your business. Yeah. And that is key because I can walk you through kind of how to think about getting a metric, but every single one is going to be specific, which is why I think the best ability to, to do it yourself is through a workshop or through a, through some kind of step by step guidelines. But here's the benefit. Here's the basics. You think about what, who your users are, which we often have personas, what their needs and goals are, and you need to be very specific. And you get that through, through user research by talking and listening and observing your customers and understanding what their key needs are around the area that you're building your business or you've got your business. And from those key needs, you distill out key uses. Mm-hmm. And a use is defined, it answers this question. This is the smartest question I've ever been asked, and it was created by Janice Frazier, who's a genius. And it is, what can someone do with your product now that they can't do without it? And when you answer that question, so for Taskadoodle, it's simple. It's sharing tasks with family members. It's knowing, getting notification when a task is done. Um, those are the types of very simple descriptors that answer that key use question. And when you know the key use of your product, then you can start to think, well, what all would could we count? What elements or things could we count in the world that would be clear indication that that use is being met? And that's really that transition point between um, the idea of a number and then understanding what the person is doing with your product and then what you would count, usually interactions or outputs or uh, content generated. There's a variety of mechanisms of what you would do. Um, clicks, of course. Uh, but what would you actually start to count to in- understand if that use is being met? And this is a very, very, very different way of looking at numbers than the traditional business indicators that we look at, like lifetime value or cost of acquisition or monthly average users or daily average users or churn. Um, these are always kind of retention type of metrics. And they're really different. And they strike at the heart of why we make our products and how we can make our products better. So that's, that's not exactly the example, but it, uh, it's the walkthrough of how to think about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we have this main interaction, right, which is creating a new task in Taskadoodle. But how do you once you find this interaction, how do you create a metric, which is a different thing, right? What is so basically what is a good metric? Sure. So a good metric for Taskadoodle, because there's, because we are hoping for, these are the, the business goals for the product would be habitual usage, task completion, and basically peace of mind for our, for our, our main customer and user. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'd be a, a solid metric would be the percent of customers who, who create and share a task, I would just say share a task, more than three times a week, and we're going to measure that weekly. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. If we could see, you know, we're not going to just get that with one button kind of or one swipe on this app. Um, we need to start to capture how many users there are that are even able to create a task. Of the tasks that were created, how many of those were shared? And then of the people who are doing that activity, how many of them are doing it more than three times a week 
And then that is a number that when we pull out all of the data bits it'll take to calculate that, that number, that we are going to timestamp weekly and measure week over week. Now, there's a lot that also has to go into that as far as, mm-hmm. well, when did somebody join? And are they an early user? Is this their first time? Are they a habitual user? So you need to capture and understand a lot about that user behavior to start to see the trends in it. But without a number at that level of fidelity and precision, you're really not ever going to know if the product is designed in a way that facilitates that type of use and effective use. Now, an even better metric, frankly, would be the number of tasks, shared tasks completed, but you got to start somewhere. So you can't complete a task unless the task is, is created and shared. So that's where you have to really intimately understand the and know the interactions of your product so that you can figure out which is the best place to start to measure the benefit of the product. Mm-hmm. It's a unique design mindset. It's not a business mindset that gets you to these kinds of insights. Mm. Yeah, it's it's still a user mindset, I think, uh, but with some love for data. <laughs> Speaking of that, um, so how do you, for let's say you have a product that's a completely new uh, product. How do you set the frequency of usage of the product um, that kind of counts as enough? So you set, in your example, percentage of users who create at least three tasks, right? So how do you come mm-hmm. up with that number three? Three is for me just a good. It's just a an arbitrary benchmark. Like three seems like enough because that starts to be in at least in my mind and in the research that I've that I've read in the past and absorbed. It feels like that seems like a habitual number. You know, seven tasks probably too high. Mm-hmm. One task maybe not so meaningful. Three seem like a good ben- benchmark. Um, I think though that as you measure over and over, you'll find. Out, how many people are doing four? How many people are doing six? You know, three becomes a meaningless number if it turns out that everybody in your in the Taskadoodle world you know, customer set is creating nine or ten tasks a week. Well, mm-hmm. then three is too, way too low. So that's but you don't know that unless you start to measure. So the very first out of the gate, the things you're going to want to measure and the goals that you set and the benchmarks are going to feel arbitrary because you have to start somewhere. That makes data people very nervous because one thing that data is not is arbitrary. And yet, when you start looking into it, it's shocking how arbitrary a lot of our data really is. Do you have an example of how you, how you iterated a metric? What I mean by that is maybe sometimes when you start off, you get it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um how do you recognize that it's maybe a wrong metric, not just in terms of the frequency, but also maybe completely the interaction was wrong. How do you recover from that? And how do you find then the right one? Is there maybe like an example that you have from your own experience? Yeah, there's uh, my examples are going to come from the time when I was the co-founder of Luxor. And I can guarantee your metrics going to be wrong. It just is. So there's rather than use phrases like recover from it, you just have to know it's going to be wrong and that the benefit of setting a metric and a goal and measuring that is to learn where and how you're wrong, hopefully in an interesting way, mm-hmm. and get smarter and make be- make better guesses. And that is a real test. That's a real mindset around the lean startup methodology and approach. So it's maybe not for everybody, but in the lean, in in a lean product or in a product, rapid product ideation mode, 
you're constantly going to be learning and adapting and adjusting. That is, that is what that's about. And so the example that I'd like to give is when, when we were at Luxor, we were creating a video based product um, for entrepreneurs worldwide to experience some of the workshops and some of the um, knowledge base that happens in Silicon Valley startups. And the, the principle was that startups and entrepreneurs are everywhere in the world. And there's so many programs that bring entrepreneurs into the Bay area or the startup um, into the Silicon Valley area. And frankly, that's helpful, but it's not, crucial. Like you should, we should be able to spread more broadly, disseminate a lot of these information um, worldwide and let people interpret it and kind of adapt it and make it their own and use it for, and use what works and don't use what doesn't work. So anyway, we had this video-based product and one of our early metrics was the percentage of people who would watch the very first video of any one of our learning modules. And it was really hard to measure that. Because we weren't, we hadn't created custom software yet. We were piecing together existing platforms, and we were because it was it was all prototyped. I mean, it wasn't really prototyped, but we were not investing in software until we had validated that this was a business need that could be met. And so, even just the mechanics of measuring how many people had had started to watch that first video was really challenging. We knew that metric wasn't going to be a durable metric for a long time, but it was an important thing to be able to get the mechanisms to be able to measure it. And that's true with any, any first time product instrumentation or metric that you're going to have. Now, as we saw people get online and, and adopt the product and start watching and using these videos, then we had designed at the end of each module almost a capstone activity so that we could indicate whether or not they completed that activity. And that was done only because we were aware that we needed to measure completion at the time. I mean, video tools have gotten a lot better, but at the time there was no way to really measure whether someone had completed a series of videos without putting some pretty brazen, did you complete this video type of interactions within the screens? Mm -hmm. And so we needed a better way to indicate that someone had completed something. And so we designed the product so that we would have that indication. And that was actually one of the things that was most transformative about looking at metrics as a crucial part of a design process is that the metrics are a design material. And when we understand what we're trying to measure, we design our products so that they can be measurable. Mm -hmm. And I believe that way too many of our products because we haven't had that mindset as designers are actually very, very difficult to measure because we didn't construct them in a way that we could measure them. And that's part of what my goal is, is to help designers look at metrics as a design material so that our work can be measurable so that we have a feedback loop on improving our work and benefit for our users. So it almost becomes like a design principle, right? So we should create something that can also be measured. Yeah. Mm, makes sense. And turns out that's actually an intention. It just doesn't happen by default. <laughs> of course. Just going back to that example again, um, so number of users, actually percentage of users who mm -hmm. create at least three tasks, um, just being a little bit um, uh, devil's advocate. So why is percentage of users 
who do this three tasks better than saying number of users who do three tasks per week? I love that question. And, you know, Jared Spool, who's the, the host and the instigator of the, the conference where I did the talk on this, on this topic. And I've actually done a couple of them and do a workshop with, with, um, user, uh, user, um, immersions, UX immersions as well. But, He's really a downer on percentages, and I am a real upper on percentages. And here's why, and, and, and we both for the, the exact same reason. We agree and disagree. Uh, and so a percentage is a balancing number. Let's imagine that Traskadoodle has uh, 100 people who satisfy this sharing a task three or more times a week. All right, and we have a user base of 1,000. So that's going to be basically like 10%. And then the next week, we have a huge bump in user adoption. So we have 100,000 users. And we now have, so this is mental math, and I'm really going to be terrible at it. Let's say we have, instead of uh, 1,000 people share a task, we have 800 people who share a task. If you're just looking at the numbers, it could look like your product usage went from, we had 100 people who satisfied, who satisfied this metric this week, and now we have 800. So that is a huge amount of growth. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the user percentage, the base of the user um, percentage, you realize that you've actually dropped. You used to be at 10% and now you're at 8% because this huge spike in numbers has, has created a false um, explosion or a false increase to this number when really you're looking at yield or percentage. So for those reasons, um, most of the time a percentage or an average or a mean is going to be a more meaningful number because as you measure it month after month or week after week or whatever your time stamp is, but over longer periods of time, the yield, it, it's, it's measuring the yield instead of the peaks and valleys that come from erratic numbers of users coming into the system. So that's why I like it. The reason that Jared hates it, which is also a good reason, is you might have a huge marketing push and push a bunch of people into your marketing funnel that are not good customers. And so now your percentage is going to be, is, is going to drop. Let's say in that second scenario where we have 100,000 users, let's say 80,000 of them are crap. Well, then that number that dropped from 10% of use to 8% of use is not meaningful because that is it's pulling from a base of users who are not a good fit. And so these are the kinds of conversations you get into when you step into metrics. It's like, yes, both of those are true and both of those are valid. And it's not whether there's one truth. It's what is our team going to do to minimize the risk when we encounter that this is absolutely true? Do we have a good relationship with marketing? Do we know who's coming into the funnel? How do we know that? Is there a way to diagnose it? Those are the types of questions that help you understand the meaning of what the numbers actually do for you. And this is where having some quantifiable measures comes really um, kind of marries really nicely with design because we can always do the research and get those answers to the question why, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, when we start looking at the numbers, there is a mindset of rigor and precision and exactitude around numbers. And I think that hurts us as businesses. I think numbers are quantitative indicators of things, but they're only as trustable as their source. And they're only as trustable as, as 
where they came from and what their use is and, and the context. You can't understand any of these numbers without understanding the context about it. Um, I probably hear, you know, business analysts and quant people just getting very irritated at me right now. But imagine if, for example, if you were talking to someone and someone said, Oh, here's Marcy. She weighs a hundred pounds. What does that mean? It means nothing. How old is Marcy? Is Marcy a human? Is Marcy a dog? Is Marcy an elephant? Is Marcy two years old or 80 years old? Like the number of weight means absolutely nothing unless you have a lot more information about the context. And that's true for our metrics as well. Is 5% adoption. Is that good? Mm -hmm. We have no idea. What if it was 1% last month? Well, then 5% looks pretty good. If you want it to be 100%, 5% looks pretty shitty. But none of these numbers happen in abstraction. And I think that is, that's been a concern of the quants in our companies as well. Mm. That's why I'm so excited about bringing these two together, right? So the quant and the qual, because then you can really get like a complete picture. You know why something is happening, but also know how much of that is happening and what exactly is happening. If you measure the right thing, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And there's, there's absolutely, you know, there's never one correct answer to what to measure, but that idea. So it's a really good principle to constantly Mm. keep in mind. Quantifiable numbers will tell us what's happening and you have to go to qualitative understanding to know why. Maybe just going back to the basics, like for listeners, why is measuring design even good? Like what are all the benefits that you've seen for designers and for businesses from uh, having some um, design metrics in place? Mm, That's a great one. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a boondoggle out here into what is quality? How do we know our work is good? And I've worked with genius, genius designers. And their work is good because they did it. They're often people are hired because they're excellent designers. This is more true, I think, in visual design, sometimes in product design. But other designers believe that their work is good. It's clean. It seems usable. It's attractive. It's sophisticated. It simplifies really hard, nasty, troubling problems. All those things are our designers' view of what is good. But our products are only going to work when they're good for our customers. And our customers have different ideas and needs for what something is good. And metrics is a way to have an honest feedback loop into a design team to know where to focus and know how to improve. And we can't, we can't ever design if our, we can't ever decide if our own work is good. We can believe it's the best work we can do, but every work out there is a hypothesis until a human uses it and gets benefit out of it at a sufficient scale to drive a good lev- a good business. And, we're, we've got a broken part of that workflow, which is there's no way in most designs and most products to assess, have an ongoing assessment of is our work getting better or is are we making things worse? No matter how we feel about it, we have to have something that's more, um, that's user reflective and that's less subjective. And So that's why. And that has like, so many additional benefits, uh, in my opinion, which is also like, you can also get out of this uh, rabbit hole and you can start 
presenting and showing your real like kind of value, right? Which is also useful for on an individual level, like for your career. When you go in there and you show, okay, I've done this and I can measure it. Which also brings me to the second point, which I find very valuable, which is also like talking to non-designers in your company. Because like you also pointed out in your talk, which is that designers mostly talk with words and images, but business people and non-designers use numbers, right? So if you make this jump to numbers, we can also be more understood by non-designers in our organizations. I hope so. I, I think pictures work best, uh, yeah. frankly. Um, you know, words, we're, we're all very wordy. Uh, but I think of those as the three languages. That's the term I use to describe them. And until you understand a problem or a situation using all three attributes, words, pictures, and numbers, mm-hmm. my gut says you don't understand the situation fully. Um, yeah, I do think that it, our business folks are much more acclimated to using words and numbers as the means by which decisions are made and understanding happens, etc. I would like to integrate more pictures in that. And for that purpose, there's a brilliant thinker, Dan Rome, who wrote The Back of the Napkin. He's subsequently written many books about using imagery and using um, diagrammatic thinking and, and pictures of people to help understand um, really nasty, hairy problems for business and how to, how to make them better. So he's a genius on that. Um, and I think has made a lot of inroads in companies that have adopted the way that he proposes we think. But the tricky part about designers is that we, unless you're in a more strategic role, it's often an implementation part of a company that someone makes all the decisions, whether it's a product manager, mm-hmm. uh, someone in product design or technology, however your company is constructed. And design, quote, UX people are either researchers or implementers. And the decisions, the nature of the decisions we make to make these interfaces and how they function means we can't just implement from spec. And since we can't implement from spec, we have to make good judgment calls. And good judgment calls come when you have good information. Good information comes when you have multiple sources like words, pictures, and numbers. But, you know, I want to go back out Sorry, to uh, something that you mentioned about numbers allows design teams to show the value and benefit of their work. That's true if the numbers are good, <laughs> but it also can really open up a severe liability if the design team of, you know, nine brilliant, awesome, fabulous, fun, loving, cool, interesting designers are not making the numbers better. And it can have a couple weird effects. One is that numbers get need to get better, but sometimes a, a metric is unbudgeable. You need to find a more fruitful metric to budge just because we want to put a lot of effort into making a metric different or the outcome from a metric different doesn't mean that it happens. There's a lot we can't control in the world. And so that can start making your design team um, look like they're not able to do their work, which is a really shitty place to be in. And the second part of it is it can get very focused only on the numbers. And once that starts happening, any system can be gamed and any system can be hacked. And you start doing things only for the benefit of the numbers instead of for the the value that the numbers represent. And that's a hard mindset. Mm-hmm. You just need to constantly be checking yourself to make sure you're not falling into the, you know, the dark pattern world of things. That's a great point. Do you have any, um, have you ever been in this kind of situation? And do you have any advice how to not get into this kind of a challenging situation? Well, 
I have, I've not been in a situation where the number hasn't been budgetable for a product other than within my own startup. Um, because most of my world has, has come through consultancy types of work and project-based work. So I don't live with the product year over year. And that's really where these insights start to happen. Um, but when I've worked with teams that have had an unbudgetable number, it really matters about the culture of why are we making this product? Is this product like, is there generosity in the business to, to help everybody succeed? Or is it that this team has been set up to deal with the challenge? And if they don't deal with the challenge, we're going to fire them and get someone else. And so <coughs> if you look at, if you look at a, there was one design team I was working with and they were being held to very rigorous numbers and they were concerned about that, but they were willing and eager to adopt that challenge. But what they felt was that the challenge was not, was it was to be won and that if they weren't able to even make any headway on a number within a short, with what they felt was too short a period of time, that then either their product would be pulled or they would all be fired. Now, that's a reality, right? Maybe it's not the best investment for the business to be even doing that kind of work, but it felt like a threat instead of feeling like a challenge that the company as a whole needed to um, to get through to be a successful company. So it's really about the leadership. Are we in this together, kind of battling together the the unknowns in a nasty, disruptive, very ag- competitively aggressive world, or are we... Are we battling ourselves and each other trying to figure out, well, make the challenge or we'll find better people. And that kind of internal mindset of competition within a company, I I haven't seen end well. Mm. That's a great point. Um, Going back to how to set the metrics, I have another question, which is, have you ever used this approach for physical products? Interesting. In a limited way. So I've worked with a few people who have what I'd call a physical but smartified project. So they have something that has a digital element, but also a physical part of it as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those are those are possible to measure, but when you the first part is try and think when you've initial set these set these uh, measures and these metrics you want to capture try not to think about the technical limitations. And I know that's hard because you're going to come up with something you can't measure and that's, but that's part of the process. So think about what would, if you can find and construct a metric that says really, what is the, how do we know that our customer is getting benefit out of this thing? Then once you know that you can start to think about how you would measure it. So if you think about an appliance, so I'm a coffee junkie, I probably drink, two pots of coffee at my local co- my little coffee maker a day. So if someone were, if the coffee maker company was interested in finding out the benefit of the coffee, they would have probably average or, you know, percentage of users who have three or more, make three or more pots of coffee a day per week. Let's just call it that because it's a little easy to deal mm-hmm. with. Right. But there's no digital way for them to measure the number of pots I make or is there. So now we're having products come online that actually can do that kind of thing. So even if you have a physical product, think about how you could get that information. It might be completely outside of the product itself. It might be 
phone calls. It might be surveys. It might be email notifications. It might be random samplings of asking people in your customer base uh, quarterly. It doesn't always have to be instrumented. It doesn't always have to be completely exact, but you have to have some kind of mechanism of feedback. So you got to get creative on how you're going to do that, especially in physical products, especially in physical products that are disconnected, that don't have any digital smarts to them at all. Which brings me to the next question, which is on what time frame should you measure these metrics? Because if you have a physical product where it's a little bit harder to measure because it's not like instantaneous, like with um, app or something like that, then you might have uh, quite a big of a lag, right? Between launching something and getting a feedback. So is there any like rules about the or best practices around how in terms of the time frame to measure those metrics and to acquire data? Yeah, it's all going to be specific to, to the product. Um, yeah. And I think product managers and product designers should know that. Like, not just throwing the, the complexity back at you, but if there's... <laughs> so I worked with a, a company that had a product that helped uh, students apply to college. And so not only were they going to have different cohorts, right? So they'd have each year a bunch of batch of people apply for college. They're probably going to do that once in their lifetime. And so there's not this habitual customer. What they want is referrals so that everybody who would use the product in the past refers it to the new incoming class of, of people who would be their next set of customers. And so they had a that kind of seasonality and that type of one-time benefit affected how they designed their product and what they were going to measure. Um, so for them, they're honestly, the year over year measure was the most meaningful because that's the cadence of how people interact with the, and get the benefit from the product. But what could they do to see if their product interactions were working more effectively? They could do a lot more experiments at times other than the year where they can start to measure whether or not people could or use their product, or they could design things that would happen throughout the year that would allow for other types of less meaningful but or less critical but still meaningful metrics to happen. So, for example, helping people write their college essay, would that be something that would prepend an application process? Um, having people use the product so that they can start to collect their schools of interest so that they can keep track of them. Now, all of those are mm-hmm. feature enhancements or feature creep if you want to look at it that way, but those things are measurable in different ways. Because for this company, they were only going to be able to really measure the big kahuna once every year. Mm-hmm. So you're almost like trying to find some leading metrics that are going to tell you the outcome before it happens. Exactly. Right? Not the lagging ones. Yeah. Got it. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, so once you have um, your design metric and you measure that, do you have any process how you then try to connect this with some business metric um, to even do that? Does it make sense? Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, there's two things. Once you start to measure and you have a, a pattern and you've built this muscle of constant measurement, there's two real benefits to it. And I'm going to, I'll give you my favorite one first and I'll answer your question in a second. The first one is being able as a team to intentionally move a number with how you change, make changes in your product is huge. That's a muscle that you will develop as a team. And if you can do that, then you can have a much more reliable confidence that your team can move almost any metric. Now, Mm -hmm. as we know, there's a lot you can't control. But 
being able to focus the design work and focus the interactions towards towards enhancing or improving a metric, I think is it's a team skill, no matter what metric you're working on. So that's the first. The second is it's really important and handy for any design team to understand how they relate to the money. How does my product relate to the money? Are you building internal tools for the sales team? In which case you're a cost center and as much as you can enhance their productivity because they're top line revenue bringers, inners, then that's your relationship to the, to the money. Um, are you, uh, are you the golden calf of the product? I mean, or of the company is your product, the thing that sells to customers who pay you money to make revenue. Or is it a percentage company? Are you an advertising company that gets certain percentages based on other types of usage and partnerships? But knowing where your product and where your work, how many how many layers away from the money it is and how it relates to the money, I think is really important and really insightful for any practitioner. I don't care where you are in a company. And to do that, I think it's important to ask for budgets. Ask for budgets, ask for allocations, ask for the company financials. In public companies, they're required to give it to you. In private companies, you might need to ask or um, you know, woo someone who has that information. But as a contributor to the company's financials, you have a right to see anything that's not confidential and private like salaries. And you know, when you think about budgets, they're nothing but a statement of priorities and numbers. They're not these foreign alien things that somebody else deals with. They're complex calculations of predictions of the future in, um, in numbers. And you can often, in fact, you should be able to tell your company's strategy by looking at the budget and seeing where they're mm-hmm. making the spends and seeing where they're starting to trim. Totally agree. And I think this is where designers need to start talking to other departments and trying to maybe even see like what their KPIs are. Mm-hmm. and see like where their project fits in because sometimes it might not be like you said generating revenue but it could be improving processes yep and there's definitely someone measuring that like so you could be maybe just measuring time to market days and showing how this decreased costs and in turn increases profit exactly <laughs> yeah okay i have taken a lot of your time kate so i'm gonna get to my final questions um so the first one is, um, what advice would you give to a young designer who's just starting out with her career? Mm, that's a good one. I'm always skeptical of advice, but I will give you what some some things that, that people said to me that helped. Um, I was encouraged early in my career to follow my gut and to inform it with rigorous research. So if I had a feeling why something was right, to really look honestly and see if I could make a, if, if what I felt was appropriate and right, how, how much I could really support that other than I think this is true. So I, I think trust your gut and, you know, trust, but validate. Uh, Because right now, even for newer designers that are, that are trained in a team situation to be passive implementers, I think that's killing our field. I think what we now need is a bunch of people who are empathetic and generous and optimistic and curious, total rabble rousers who are unforgiving of, <coughs> of um, past mistakes 
and eager to make new and exciting mistakes, hopefully of less magnitude. So I say be pushy, have a voice, find your voice and use it. That's my biggest advice. Cool. The next question, like what is one thing about design that you've changed your mind about in, let's say, the last two years? It can also be more. Well, there was a big, you know, my approaches of des as being a designer have taken you know, these big cliff um, or step changes, I think, as I become more knowledgeable, or at least just more time on job, I guess, and see more things happen. The biggest one was really a shift from loving the systems and loving the things to really loving the people. That was a shift that I think made me from an interaction designer to an experienced designer, someone who recognized that all of the work that I was doing was in service to a human and that I needed to care and understand and really love that human and the, and humans like them and uh, be in service to them. I think that was the first big jump in my, my understanding and perception as a designer. I think the next one was looking at lean startup approaches as our designs are experiments. They are hypotheses that they are constantly needing to adapt and improve and get better. I know mm -hmm. lean startup isn't a durable method for more stable companies in many ways, but with, but we always are in a, some state of disruption. And I think we need to have these learning experimental mindsets um, much more embedded in our companies. Uh, and, and that has, that transformed how I, how I do design. I think the last one within the very latest period of design is that um, because I teach and because I consult and because I work with teams, but not necessarily on a team, I think it is time for me to get back way into the, into the tools and into this, into the problems again. And so uh, in the next year, I'm hoping to incubate a new product to work on based on a need that I've seen for years. And it's always been an itch I'd like to scratch, but you don't learn anything about design by talking about design. You learn about design by doing design. And I, uh, I get to talk about it a lot. I get to do it and coach people through it, but I got to get doing it with my hands again. A lot of the things have changed and I'm eager to re explore them. So it might be time to reinvent. So on this last point, this is an interesting discussion I had with a friend a few days ago which is, um, it's kind of hard to explain. So how do you, how do you perceive designer who is consultant versus designer who actually works on a product, you know, like in a, in a product company? How is this different? Is there like, can you say one is better or what's your like take on the whole, this whole discussion? Because we were thinking, um, and this friend is working in a, in a consultancy and like, oh, okay, I've seen a lot of projects now in, in my time here, but I'm starting to think maybe I should go into one company and work on one product for a longer time. Is there like an answer for this? Like what makes sense when and for whom? Sure. Yeah. Those are, it's so funny because, uh, that is a, that is a big question and people shape their careers and their lives trying to answer it. Um, there is no one way, there is no best way. But as exactly as your friend categorized or mentioned, if you're in a consultancy, you have the opportunity to do a lot of work in a variety of different fields, see how different teams function, see how different techniques work, etc. So it is a very broad aperture for a lot of diversity and uh, in your design work. And 
you know, just because you're a consultant doesn't mean you're not making things. Like I made more design work as a consultant than I did when I was in a product company earlier than that. So I think that, so that's a real benefit. If you're in a product company, you get to see how a product evolves year over year or month over month and work with a team to, to bring something, you know, to, to grow something very specific in a specific field that's probably not going to change. And that is a different kind of learning. And I think both are important and I encourage people to do both. The one thing that when I was in uh, Adaptive Path, if someone wanted to leave, we had a very, very low turnover rate in that company. Uh, it was a great place to work, was a consultancy. And when someone decided to move on and said, I want to work at a product company for a while, like there was never anything we could do. You know, no amount of incentives <laughs> or money would do that because that wasn't the kind of company, that wasn't the kind of experience that that, that consultancy could provide. So, you know, make your choices. But I think it's good to be, it's good to do a little bit of both mm-hmm. to try one. And some people honestly are really good in one and not great in the other. So knowing that about yourself is an insight. Mm, great point. So you you can basically try both and then see for yourself. Yeah. Cool, Kate. Um, so the last question, very last. Um, maybe where can listeners who want to who want to learn more about your work or about you find you? Sure. Uh, I blog mercurially and often, um, not always about design, at intelletto.com, I-N-T-E-L-L-E-T-O.com. Intelletto is a word created by Michelangelo, meaning the in- intelligence in- that's embedded within art. I always like that spirit, so that's mm. where that came from. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kate Rudder. Uh, and I have a podcast with my beloved friend and colleague, Laura Klein, who has written multiple books about design and is marvelous and genius and very opinionated. And it is called What is Wrong with UX? You can find it on iTunes and you can uh, subscribe. And we it is not safe for work. We swear and cuss and sometimes yell at each other. And uh, I think that's a lot of fun to listen to. So. Cool. And I can only recommend the podcast. I've also listened to it myself and it's really great. Uh, again, Kate, thanks for your time. This was really, really awesome. Well, Alan, this has been a real pleasure. You've asked some terrific questions and gotten me thinking and it has just been a joy to spend time with you. Thank you. Cool. That's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com 
Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.